This time on Poll Hub, the never-ending midterms. More than a week after Americans turned out in record-shattering numbers to vote in the 2018 midterm elections, there are still critical races undecided, and the narrative is still being rewritten. Turns out there really was a Democratic blue wave of historic proportions. We're talking with CNN polling guru Harry Enten about what happened and what it may mean in 2020. Then our own Marist poll investigation into why a few of our state polls, along with almost everybody else's, were a little bit off. We went back and re-interviewed people we polled to find out if they had changed their minds prior to Election Day. And, well, this wouldn't be much of an intro if I told you here what they said. So, ready, steady, poll hubs go. Hi, everybody. Welcome to Poll Hub. I'm J.D. Dapper, Director of Innovation here at the Marist Poll. And I'm Lee Marigoff, Director of the Marist College Institute for Public Opinion. And I'm Barbara Carvalho, Director of the Marist Poll. And it is the midterm election that will never end, apparently. Uh, <laughs> we uh, are more than a week past uh, Election Day, and there are not that many races still uncounted, but the narrative is so different than it was on election night. It has changed over the course of the last 10 days. And one of the people who is more aware of that than anybody is Harry Enten, who I like to call the polling guru at CNN. But Harry, you have a different title, don't you, at CNN? Yeah, they call me the senior political writer and analyst, although my line is always just don't call me late for supper and we'll be good. <laughs> well, that, that's a good line. Um, what are you what are you on election night? You like everybody else looking at the numbers coming in going, eh, blue wave, maybe maybe a little blue wave, maybe a blue ripple. But this has really changed over the last 10 days. I think that this is an example of a few things. Number one, not to judge a book by its cover, but also to recognize that sometimes the results that come in early on an election night isn't necessarily reflective of what will eventually come in. And that's why it's so important that we model these results as they come in. I think the old model of looking at results as they literally are coming in no longer applies. And we have to recognize which states are coming in first, how these states differ from the states that might report later. And in doing so, we might be able to give the audience a more accurate representation of what might actually turn out to be the case when all the votes are in and counted. You know, I think we were all sort of waiting on the first inkling of a result. So everybody knew that Indiana was going to close first. Everybody was looking at it. I believe it was Kentucky, the 6th District in Kentucky. And, and Virginia, the Barbara Comstock yeah. District. And so there were a few things. And when the Democrats lost the Indiana Senate and the Kentucky congressional race, uh, then it sort of said, well, maybe this isn't going to be quite what the night they'd hoped for. But if you go back and retch, you know, go back, turn the clock back a little bit uh, further, I mean, I think what ended up happening with the House and the Senate sort of is where people were being touted from the get-go. Yeah, I, I think that's exactly right. I mean, if you were to look at, say, the pre-election models that, you know, might have been put out by me or put out by my old colleague and dear, dear, still dear old friend Mr. Silver at 538, the results ended up being pretty close to what was actually modeled to be the results. Uh, and it just took a little bit of time for the results to come in on election night. Indeed, I'll, I'll give you a little story very quickly, which was we, you know, we have these internal models that we run and I was, you know, looking at and coming to my own conclusions based upon that. And I was pretty sure by 830, especially that the Democrats are going to do pretty well, even though the results that were coming in were not necessarily indicative of that. And that was because nothing that we saw coming in necessarily disagreed with the pre-election spin that Democrats were going to do fairly well. And as it turns out, that pre-election spin was pretty much right on. 
So how does that change during the evening? I mean, we used to have that problem with exit polls, you know, reporting the exit polls after the first couple of waves, and then the the narrative changing as the evening goes on. Um, this was this was even more so. The narrative was changing as the days went on. Um, so what is it that uh, you think can be done to kind of make that connection between between the data and the stuff that you're looking at and what becomes the narrative of the night, which is announced as, you know, as if it's the, you know, the, the Belmont Stakes. Right. As if, you know, the electoral gods have come down to us and handed it to us on a gold-plated tablet stone or whatever the heck it is that we see these results. I, I think really... You like the Old Testament really stuff, what, right? You know me. I, I, the Jewish man that I am, I do love the Old Testament. Uh, we don't necessarily do the new too much, although I heard it's a fantastic document. Um, I think that what needs to be done is, traditionally speaking, the way that election night coverage has generally worked is you have one of maybe four categories, right? There, we either say nothing has happened in a race, you say a race is too early to call, you say a race is too close to call, or you call a winner. I don't think that that really works in this day and age anymore. Mm -hmm. What you really need is a more probabilistic way of thinking about things. Mm -hmm. And you need to be able to inform the audience that just because this race hasn't been called doesn't mean it's not likely that such a candidate will win. And when you're modeling that out and being able to give the audience the best informed piece of wisdom that you can about where the results will ultimately end up, you need to be able to present it in such a probabilistic way so that when we're talking about races, yes, the Democrats may not have won that many House seats so far, but we fully expect based upon the results that they will eventually win them. And so they will end up at, say, a net gain of somewhere between 30 and 40 seats, which, of course, would give them the majority. And I'm not sure that we've necessarily gotten to that point yet, although we should be heading in that direction. Well, p part of the problem, I think, is also, you know, just a simple matter of time zones. California doesn't close when the East Coast closes. And yet there was an expectation which has been borne out over the last few days, since Election Day anyway, that the Democrats were picking up a lot of seats in the House that you kind of expected they were going to, but you didn't necessarily couldn't say that election night because, you know, they hadn't been called and a lot of them hadn't been counted. And it's you know, the polls don't close to 11 o'clock Eastern Standard Time. So that's uh, that that compounds the problem, I suspect. I, I think it definitely does. And that's, you know, one of the interesting sort of things that we have to think about in terms of how data is presented on election night is it may be that you're not able to call individual races. Mm -hmm. But when you're sort of tallying them up and giving an estimate of where we believe say, in a presidential election, the Electoral College will end up, or in a House election where we think, you know, the total number of seats will be won by each side, we may not be able to call individual races, but we will be able to say our best forecast or our best estimate is such a side will end up with X and such a side will end up with Y based upon what we expect our priors to be and the results that are coming in so far. You know, one of the things that really stands out this time around is the impact of early voting, which has been increasing in state after state, the number of people doing early voting. And and California, we were just talking about that, and it's so interesting because the California races have been, as the absentee ballots and other votes have been counted, have one after another been flipping from what looked like a Republican win on election night to Democratic wins. How do you guys, looking ahead to 2020 at CNN, how do you deal with 
this question of all the early voting when it's counted. Arizona is another example. They count it. They start counting two days later, and it's fifty percent of the vote. How do you deal with that when we are all attuned and, frankly, all the media is is focused on getting the result as fast as possible? How do you guys deal with that going into twenty twenty? Well, I, I think there are a few things. Number one, I believe the number one thing that should be pointed out is it's most important that all the votes get counted. And in a vote that's counted on election night is worth the same as a vote that's counted two or three days later. So that's number one. And we need to make sure that the audience is aware of that. Uh, number two, I think from a modeling perspective, we're going to have to go, I think this is true across networks and across mediums, we're going to have to go back and look at the historical trends of how different votes that come in at different times break down. So in Arizona, for example, the votes that are dropped off um, on election day or the ballots that are dropped off at the polling places on election day tended to be more Republican-leaning than those that were dropped off on the Friday through Monday before the election. And then the ones before that tended to be more Republican-leaning. Uh, we are going to need to look at those historical trends over time and get an understanding so that we have a true grasp of how the vote tally may shift from those votes that come in. That's not an easy task. Things are going to change. What the trends that are this year may not hold the next time around, although they tend, tend to hold more generally speaking. I think my real question is, what's going to happen if the 2020 election turns out to be close and then a state like Arizona may be the ultimate swing state that puts one party over the top or another. It's going to be very interesting to see how the media handles that and how the candidates themselves handle that, because you could end up with a situation where one candidate is ahead on election night. And then as the votes get tallied and these different male votes get tallied over time over the next week to two weeks he could end up with a different winner, and that could be very interesting. Thank you for spelling out my nightmare and all of our nightmares. That's very <laughs> there's, kind. There's of also the 269 to 269 scenario. Okay, stop. Stop. Okay. It's Thanksgiving. We're spe or soon. We're supposed to be in a good mood. <laughs> okay, Barb. Well, thank you very much, Harry. We really very much appreciate uh, you joining us today and uh, giving us this, uh, this, this nightmare scenario. <laughs> I mean, I think one of my impressions is that also sometimes election night just lacks time topic sentences, um, but you do that extremely well and uh, and have, you know, clarified things, and we uh, hope to chat with you again. And if they liked what Harry had to say to forecast or anything on twi Twitter, twi Twitter. 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 You're Twitter. a Twitter. Okay. It's a Twitter. I'm a Twitter. Okay. What difference does it make? It's all the same. <laughs> <laughs> but there, there's where I find a lot of interesting stuff, and you can too if you follow Harry. Thanks, Harry. Okay, so last week we started talking a little bit about our plan to analyze our poll results after the election, something we do every election year. This time we want to take a little special look at it. And so we did some interesting things, and we're in the middle of that process. But, Barb, why don't you talk a little bit about what we actually have done and what we're finding out? Well, sure. Um, we were looking at the polls last time uh, that we chatted, and we talked about how the national polls were right on again. Um, but we did see some differences um, in the state polls. Um, we thought we I think we characterized the results as mixed. Um, all the most of the statewide polls uh, showed that uh, the the 
the elections or um, the contests, the Senate contests and the and the congressional contests were very very competitive, um, mm -hmm. and we felt that even though uh, most of the polls were right within the error margin, that kind of isn't good enough for us. We want to make sure that um, we review everything to to be as accurate as possible. One of the things that we did this week, and we can only do it right after mm -hmm. an election, is we recontact, we recall people who we spoke with in our pre-election polls. Mm -hmm. So we went back to three states, Indiana, Missouri, uh, and Tennessee. Um, and those were three states where, although we had the states as very competitive, um, I think we seemed, we felt we had underestimated mm -hmm. um, some of the, uh, the Republican turnout. So for instance, in Tennessee, we did have, you know, Blur Blackburn ahead with a solid with a solid lead. But I mean, she actually. It was a big win. She, it, was a big, it was a big win for her. Uh, we had it around five. She won, I think it's going to turn out to be around 10. Oh, yeah, so 11, 10, 11, 10, 11. 10, 11. So we went back to those three states to. to uh, although, if I can just interrupt, one of the things that we were concerned about election night also was Arizona, although we had it within the margin of error, uh, we thought that McSally might. Actually, in fact, win, and now and, the votes. And, and, well, because our, we had had cinema up as almost every poll had had. That's right, and so and, and, so, and by the time they finished counting. Barb wanted precision. We're going to be exactly where we wanted to well, be. Well, exactly. Joke, and joke. I think but that that's, you know, that's what Harry, you know, yes. that's really what Harry was talking about. Um, and when we're talking about elections yep. in the future, we're going to need to talk about elections, not as election day, but um, I think as one election of our, month. you know, students characterized it as election month. But, um, but, I, but I digress. So uh, go back to our project. So we re, we recontacted uh, folks that we had spoken with prior to election day, and these were three states that we had done the week before uh, election day. So it was pretty proximate um, to to election day and when these these folks um, were going to be uh, voting. We did not recontact people who said that they had voted absentee, um, but we did recontact people who said perhaps they weren't going to vote. So we took a look at that, and it was it did inform um, our, you know, what exactly happened. So we were polling these folks pre-election uh, the, the week before election day. And when we recontacted them, uh, Democrats pretty much told us that they voted for Democrats the Democratic candidate. Mm -hmm. Republicans pretty much told us that they voted for the Republican candidate. Exactly Those, as they had told us in the polling. Exactly. Mm -hmm. And so that was really baked in. And I think that's been our perception over time that there is the, somehow this baked in electorate. However, there is another group of voters out there, and that's those who identify as independents. Now, some of those lean Democrat, some of those lean Republican, uh, but they aren't. They don't have strong attachments to one party or the other. And I think what was really interesting is that what we did find was going into Election Day, um, when we looked at three these three states and combined them, um, independents were plus 13 um, for the Democrat. Mm -hmm. After election day, when we recontacted them, those independents were only plus five 
for the for the Democrat. And so there was a real shrinking of Democratic support, specifically among independents in those three states. And coincidentally, perhaps not so coincidentally, mm -hmm. the Trump those, effect. Were, those were three states that President Trump visited after our polling and right before Election Day. One of the things that I, I was you know, somewhat cautious about is when we were in the field for those final polls, that was right around the time of the bombing and uh, the, the shooting in Pittsburgh and the, uh, the the bombs that were delivered, uh, the pipe bombs that had been delivered to various uh, political leaders, Democrats, uh, Democrats, and um, and the, it seemed that that was a time where the Democratic message was stronger. And then later in the week, as we got closer to Election Day, when Donald Trump sort of regained the message a little bit, I think that's where some of these independents may have swung back. At least that's the hypothesis I'm working on. Well, but but you know, you actually now have some data to back sure. that up. And I think that one of the things, I mean, science is hard, but science can be really helpful. And when we, when we look at polling before an event, and then we look at what happens, so elections are really a lot of accountability for polls. Um, if we don't have this kind of information and this kind of data and research, what happens is we start making stuff up. So we start talking about well, well we, 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 don't. Don't. we don't we don't we don't but they I think do. I think well well you know but but we but everybody does speculate and there is a lot of conjecture about the why. Well and that's what started this is it, as we the next morning we said what are we going to do and what, and and we did we everybody was throwing I guess maybe people changed their minds. If exactly. they changed their minds who were they? And that was that's the first thing you do is you go find out did they change their minds. So. And we also wanted to know you know we've been hearing that you know the shy Trump voter again and that somehow polls and we talked about this last time somehow the polls aren't getting at and to the 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 Trump uh, supporter. And you know we've talked about why that's not the case and, and how we actually actually, um, you know, overcount that particular group because of uh, demographic issues in terms of the types of mm -hmm. phones that they have and the fact that they, you know, tend to live in rural areas and be easier to connect with and how we actually undercount democratic uh, constituencies. Um, but I think this actually speaks to the fact of the, that people can and do change their mind between when we Campaigns poll in a, in a, in a pre-election <laughs> poll yeah, for that, independence. That's, that's done yeah. days before um, and then on election day. And I don't think we talk enough about the people who do swing back and forth. We've gotten so focused on the tribes. We've gotten so focused on the base for a party or the base for a candidate that we do forget this very large portion of our electorate that is independent. And they do yeah. lean, they sometimes lean one way and sometimes well, lean the, the other. One of the questions we came up with this time, a concept of persuadable voters, uh, was done just for that very reason, to take a look at those who are undecided, but not just that group, the people who also say they are going to vote for someone one, but might still change their mind. And that group, in some of these states, the, the persuadables was around double digit, even when we did those uh, polls uh, about eight to ten days out from election day. And interestingly enough, a lot of them seem to be those same independent voters uh, yeah. in the persuadable they, categories. They were persuaded to vote for yeah. the Republican, and even though some of them said they might vote for that's a Democrat. Right. So yeah. they did vote. Okay, yeah. we know that, and they we, and that they were in this persuadable category, and they seem to have an impact, not necessarily on winning and losing, but 
the the the, uh, the range within which these races. Well, so there are so a couple of things. Yeah, there are yeah. actually a couple of things on the persuadables. One is that a large proportion of them um, didn't vote. Didn't About a vote. third yeah. of them um, of, of persuadables, and this was not a huge number in our poll, but persuadables in the Senate races in those three states. About a third of them um, told us that they didn't end up voting for mm -hmm. a variety of reasons: not being mm -hmm. able to get there, mm -hmm. um, having to that's work. Right. You know, yeah. most yep. you know most things um, that kind of thing, and that's a and that compares, um, you know, with, you know, overall of about one in 10 voters uh, who we speak with who, who end up not actually going, going to the polls or, ca or casting a ballot. So they are, they are more likely to, to not vote, uh, as are uh, people who say that they are undecided in a race. Okay, but they, but they still, a lot of them still voted. They Absolutely. Two, more, two thirds of, two them, thirds of them, voted them voted. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. So they're more prone than other people we spoke to not to have actually voted, so, but, so, but they actually are so, voters. And what happened yeah. was that they, in these particular states, those people who we we characterized as persuadable were more likely to vote for the Republican than they were for the Democrat when they made up their mind. So what do we learn, and we're still learning, let's let's be clear that we've done one piece of what is a multi-piece puzzle here mm -hmm. to try and understand what's going on, but what, what, have we, what are we going to do with this, and how does this impact our um, polling going into 2020? Well, I, I, I always think, and, and this comes off 2016, and it's reinforced by, by 2018, I think the idea of communicating to our audience, you know, that there is uncertainty in these elections, even when the polls suggest, well, it looks, you know, this person's ahead by six points. Wow, that's really locked in. And people do change their minds. Campaigns matter. And although the bases may be already defined, as Barb has indicated, um, you know, there are people who are still on the fence, and we have to continue to remind the audience that, you know, this is a group of people who are still in that persuadable category. There's an uncertainty in this. And uh, what about instrument. our what about our likely voter model? Does that? Oh yeah, that we haven't. Be? I mean, we actually haven't gotten to that, but that is that is a next step, which is we will take um, we will take not only the recontact information, but then we will go to the voter lists and compare those people um, who we spoke with. Pre-election, uh, we will we will check to see whether, in fact, they voted. We won't know how. Um, that that isn't public information, but we'll know whether they voted or they didn't vote, and then we'll analyze how our likely voter model predicted who was going to show up and who 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 didn't. Okay, so still still More work to, to be do. done. We're already in the process of learning, and uh, it was a pretty good polling year. Uh, and I think the narrative was generally pretty set, as, as Harry Enten indicated. Uh, so we're not having that big fallout after 2016. Doesn't mean that we can't make improvements in uh, 2020. And that'll do it for this episode of Poll Hub. Poll Hub is a production of Marist College here in frigid, too early to be this frigid, Poughkeepsie, New York. And Mary Griffith is our executive producer who uh, occasionally we actually listen to and do what she says, not often enough. Kenny Marples is our uh, editor, Excelsior. Wow. Well, we'd also like to thank the, <laughs> thank the Roper Center Archive at Cornell University. Uh, they help us look back in time at different survey questions and results to understand what a pun what opinion was, easy for me to say, opinion was in the past and uh, helps us understand the present and perhaps somewhat the future. Yes, and as I say in class, 
please give me your questions. So please, in this case, send your questions to pullhub at maris.edu or reach out for us, uh, reach out for us, reach out to us on social media. We're at Maris Poll on Twitter or Maris Poll on Facebook. And as Jade Dapper will remind you every week, don't forget to subscribe. Hit that button. Say bye-bye. Bye. Bye. Bye.